Television's Time Lord is to take a rest. The BBC have announced that Doctor Who will be off the air for 18 months. The controller of BBC One, Michael Grade, made the decision a month before the new series was due to start production. Doctor Who's been on the screens for 22 years. It's being dropped to save money. No one could have believed that on the 27th of February 1985, Doctor Who's affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of the BBC. No one could have dreamed that the show was being scrutinised. As someone with a microscope studies blood samples, the producer never considered that the show would ever be cancelled. And yet, across the sixth floor, minds immensely inferior to ours regarded the show with envious eyes. And slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. Happy Hiatus Versary, everyone. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And in this episode, we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the program's original cancellation or postponement or whatever the BBC called it at the time. Think of this as the podcasting equivalent of a therapy session where we unload all that pent-up angst and emotion relating to this momentous decision. And as Taylor Swift sings... And welcome to Mark as well. How are you, Mark? I'm very well, Rob. How are you on this fine evening? Uh, it is a, it's a humid evening in Melbourne town, everyone. I know some of our uh, listeners are currently beneath 15-foot deep snow drifts in the Northern Hemisphere, but it's a balmy 25 degrees outside and it's quite tropical at the moment. But winter is coming, allegedly, so we'll just see. We're not going to talk about Missy, are we? <laughs> uh, no, we're going we're gonna to just drive, a bit like a car accident, we're going to drive past and not look at it. <laughs> Do our best not to look at it. Uh, we, might, we might come back to it later. No uh, rubbernecking. <laughs> no, no rubbernecking at that particular disaster, because we don't want to be seen as whiners, do we, Mark? No, that's right. So let's talk about a different disaster. Or, <laughs> or was it? Well, we will be looking at the, uh, the original uh, cancellation back in 1985 shortly, but uh, we've, uh, we'd just like to thank everyone for their kind comments, those people who did comment about our interview with Richard Marson uh, about his biography of Verity Lambert, which is now available for pre-order at Milk Publishing. That's M-I-W-K Publishing. Uh, as I said before uh, during the interview, uh, do, if you can, go to the site directly and pre-order, pre-order from them because basically the money, all your money will go to them. Uh, I think they have a policy of not listing on Amazon because Amazon, A, demands a massive reduction and then, of course, takes their cut. And don't pay tax, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> Given the organisation I work for, I can't comment on that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> With all the small press uh, uh, publishers out there, they're all sort of operating on the on a, uh, this, you know, an oily rag, the smell of an oily rag. So give them, give them a go and order directly from uh, from Milk because uh, as we discovered with uh, Richard and as we discovered with uh, the J&T biography, um, we, uh, the, Verity, uh, the Verity Lambert biography is sure to be uh, a must read for 2015 for any, any fan of the show. And I'm counting on the hardback edition increasing in value over time better than uh, some of my uh, share portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you just got to tell the people at work, Mark, to start cutting jobs. That's the surefire way to increase profits, isn't it? Moving on. <laughs> I too have shares in that same organisation, but uh, I, no, I no longer work for it, so I can demand people <laughs> be sacked. <laughs> All right, we've drifted off topic. So everyone, uh, to those people who actually corresponded with us and said that they really enjoyed the interview, thank you um, thank you to them, and thank you to, once again to Richard. Um, as anyone could tell listening to the interview, Richard can talk uh, at length about anything, perceptively, 
uh, and with great insight. So it was a pleasure having him on. And uh, maybe when he, he does his next book, we'll get him back on again. He'll be uh, featured again on our podcast this evening. Uh, yes, we did take the opportunity to ask um, Richard one or two other questions aside from his book. And uh, yes, as you say, we'll be featuring his thoughts about this very topic, which we'll get to shortly. Was there anything else in Doctor Who fandom that caught your eye, Mark? Or are we still not rubbernecking and moving on? Nothing's really grabbed my fancy, floated my boat, no. What about you? Anything that's happened? Well, I did was going through more boxes today, and I came across my copy of uh, Peter Hanning's Key to Time. Oh. That was a highlight. I got that for Christmas back in 1984. Oh. Or 84? 84? Yeah. yeah, lovely book. Uh, slightly inaccurate in a lot of places, but... <laughs> Extremely um, inaccurate, yeah. Brought back a gush of uh, old memories from uh, when I was a lad. So yes. uh, that was my highlight. And I think I came across some novelizations. Of course, there's always novelizations. So. You got any duplicates? Target books there you could uh, sell on eBay for a small fee? No, they're not, not. none of them are worth anything, are they, nowadays? The Target novelizations or even the, uh, the, Virgin, the Virgin books. I think some of the new adventures are uh, quite... Uh... Fetch quite high prices on eBay these days. Even now. I remember yeah. back, back in the day, um, So Vile a Sin, which I picked up for the princely sum of 85 cents, uh, you could make a mortgage repayment with that. It's probably still too much, really. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Mm. All right, we've meandered too long. Uh, let's. Uh, we'll all see you on the other side of the break where we talk about the 1985 cancellation. As we alluded to just a few moments ago, we took the opportunity to ask uh, Richard Marsden, the author of the JNT biography, who was at ground zero at the time of the original cancellation news uh, came through, for his memories and insight of that tumultuous period. So take it away, Richard. To help us uh, celebrate, in air quotes, the cancellation of Doctor Who 30 years ago, uh, Richard uh, Marsden has kindly uh, agreed to be uh, put under the microscope. Richard, what are your memories of, of, of that time, the announcement, how uh, dumbstruck was fandom and, uh, at the time and, and blindsided? What, how was it 30 years ago? Well, I mean, I think it's hard now to underestimate the shock that that news uh, caused. I mean, there had been rumours among the people who, you know, the fans like myself, who were kind of involved in some way at the epicentre of the production. I mean, you know, I'm not building our parts, but, you know, obviously there were people who had access uh, to the production and, you know, talked to people who were working on the show or were going to studio recordings or whatever. And there were rumours flying around in the weeks, the couple of weeks before it was announced, that the show was in trouble. And a lot of people just thought it was just, you know, gossip and nonsense and not really to be taken seriously. So when it was announced and, you know, there was a famous front page of The Sun and all the rest of it, I think there was, you know, people just couldn't believe that in less than two years since the Five Doctors and the 20th anniversary and Longleat and all of that, the BBC were genuinely saying, you know, goodbye. You just mentioned before the rumours flying around a few weeks beforehand. JNT didn't sort of take notice or was he... I don't think he knew. I think he was almost, you know, John was normally the one who started the rumours with me in most cases. Um, but I think that you have to remember that it was all happening. The production of that season, season 22, had more or less just wrapped and had been in production for whatever 10 months or so i think he was off to the states um for conventions and you know doing kind of 
piddling about you know the kind of things that happen at the end of a production before production was going to gear up production was only about seven weeks away on the next season so you know it wasn't as though he was kind of taking his eye off the ball for a long period of time but I think he was just kind of thinking I'm going to do a few conventions blah 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 and you know he just probably wouldn't have believed in fact we know because he uh, he was told by somebody by um uh, Robert Holmes told Eric Saywood and Eric I think floated the idea and it was just absolutely dismissed by John mm. um but you know rumblings were going around the BBC BBC's you know, have to remember that television center that circular building was it was designed for gossip you know so <laughs> it, it, if you started a, a story in one part of that building by the afternoon you know it would have it gone its way and elaborated and become a kind of work of art and you know i heard you know when i eventually worked there myself you know that's that's often how it happened but it meant that you know sometimes a rumor would be based on something quite often it would be crap so to be fair to john i don't think he was being sort of negligent or or don't careish i think he just probably thought someone was being malicious in terms of the cancellation was it proper cancellation or was it a postponement or was it no there were rumors i mean i know there've been rumors since and people have trying to shifted their position and so on and so forth but um i'm under absolutely no illusions i mean that was certainly the understanding at the time the show had been cancelled outright and when I did the research for the, for the John book, people like Jonathan Powell and my God, you know, he should know. And he mm. he was extraordinarily unapologetic about it. In fact, his regret was that it became a postponement. He felt that they wimped out. You know, he said that when he met with um, Michael Grade and Bill Cotton, you know, the decision was that's the end of the game. And they were talked out of it really by the press office because of the reaction and because they really didn't want the embarrassment of Doctor Who fans picketing the House of Commons and <laughs> making nuisance of themselves and all of that stuff. And they and also because they hadn't considered uh, BBC Enterprises, as it, as it was then called, who obviously phoned up in a blue fit and said, what the fuck are you doing? We've pre-sold this show. You know, we've got packages of episodes pre-sold to America. And it was an extraordinary, from a commercial point of view, which, and you can fairly say the BBC in those days particularly, wasn't meant to be a commercial organisation. But it was a really extraordinarily obtuse decision because the show was making money for the BBC. And that was another of the major factors why they reluctantly said, OK, we'll do, you know, this half-hearted... 14 episode season it's amazing that um but the hatred they had towards the show why didn't they put it on to say bbc2 or they just wanted to get it off completely <laughs> that, yeah no bbc you see that's it, 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 they didn't they wouldn't shifting it to bbc2 it would still have been a bbc show it would still have been made by bbc drama mm. it you know it, they really disliked the show and and to be fair to those people that wasn't new either i mean since the sort of probably the late 70s Doctor Who in lots of parts of the BBC was not regarded in high favour. It was regarded as a sort of irksome chore to work on because there was no money and no time. Um, and it was not something that was going to garner great reviews. It was fodder. You know, it was like a show that churned out 26 episodes a year. It had a certain audience. It wasn't a sexy audience in television terms. Um, and it was also an audience that was slightly losing its way because it had always been seen really as a children's programme. But once it was moved to the uh, mid-evening slots, a lot of children kind of were lost along. And I think also the show became 
slightly kind of obsessed with its own continuity and so on which i don't think yeah. kind of helped us um all the things that you know about already i'm telling i'm preaching to the converted but right. you know it's that was one of the things that was so fascinating about charting john's story because in a way he he could do so much but he was also he and the show were partly hostages to the way the bbc was going and where the way the bbc's attitude had hardened towards certain kinds of shows was it the right thing to do do you think i think it was inevitable i think it was extremely unprofessionally and cynically done i think that what they should have done was replace the production team and put real effort into fighting. And, and and I don't mean replace John Nathan Turner and show him the door, because he was someone who could have done very, very good business for them if they'd found the right job for him. Mm. I, think they, I think they were extremely uh, cynical in the way that they just kind of let... I think Jonathan Powell put it as, let, the, let it wither on the vine, just let it kind of rot from within, because they were creatively clapped out. You can't do a show like that for maybe longer than five years without there being a serious issue that you're going to repeat yourself or or fall into all sorts of traps and you know given that there wasn't a lot of support and there wasn't a lot of time or money it's a miracle that he did achieve what he achieved he and his teams um but i think you know that there were two options they should have either put it out of its misery and just said unequivocally that's the end of it or they should have looked to revive it creatively and invest in it properly and put some of the money they were making from it into the production, which is what they didn't do. That was very cynical mm. and, in my view, wrong because, you know, America was on the verge of, of that market exploding. And if they'd fed the market a bit and been cleverer about it, and they could have improved the quality of the show and kept it selling all over the world what we're seeing in america now in terms of the global acceptance of the program it could have happened back then it could have done i mean the thing is but you have to but all of this is to suppose that the bbc was a different organization it Mm. simply wasn't geared up to think like that no one in television center in management there was thinking about the global position they they thought well it's enterprise's job to sell the stuff we do and good luck to them but their job was what was going on domestically and Doctor Who was no longer a good fit for that. So there are Richard's thoughts uh, about um, his memories of the cancellation back in 1985. I think the one thing that I take away from his comment, and it was also picked up in, in the biography he did of J&T, Mark, was that J&T himself was, was blindsided by, this, uh, by the announcement. It, I, I, it's hard to believe how someone who should have had the confidence of the upper levels of the BBC, wasn't notified earlier. And that um, he was he was as much surprised as anyone else at the time. And probably the perceptions of the powers that be uh, regarding JNT as well. I mean, in something like that, in a, in a, in a business or an organisation like that, you, you would think that someone you know in JNT's position would have a sponsor or a friend or a mentor or, or something like that where... You, you would assume that you could place your trust in them to, you know, to deliver information to you or be act as a sounding board. Mm. It just seemed like he was um, divorced from all those processes, and and even to the extent where he his opinion wasn't even sought about where he saw the future of the show because the BBC or management itself was rapidly coming to a conclusion that the show needed to go. Basically, I think J and T was caught up a lot in the fan accolades at the time and was caught up with conventions 
and uh, you know he was treated almost messiah-like, wasn't he, in America. He just got caught up in it and thought he was untouchable and therefore his show was untouchable. As Richard says, you know, only two years before, they had the 20th anniversary celebrations. Why would you think a cancellation would be on the horizon after those events? I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, it, it had some success. It, it rated, you know, seven and a half, seven point seven million. The Five Doctors, and you know, was the, was certainly the the center of a lot of attention on both sides of the Atlantic. But I don't know. I mean, if I was in, you would think that in JNT's position, and we don't want to turn this into a, you know an examination or a re-examination of JNT again. But you would think that in his position, being at the helm of a show that was at that point what twenty two years old, that you, the end of <laughs> The end was coming sooner rather than later, <laughs> yeah. and you would be planning for the future. You know, instead of just look, looking forward to the next year and to the next year and to the next year, just seeing what the BBC's attitude. Then I suppose there's there's a failing on both sides because the BBC basically washed its hands of the of the show, and um, it was just up to someone to wake up and go, well, we don't really need that anymore. We we can put the money somewhere else, and you know, of course, there was uh, EastEnders was coming on stream. Doctor Who wasn't the only show. That was cancelled at that time, and we we have to remember that you know the show initially was cancelled. Uh, that was it. They mm. put a, you know they, they'd laid down a gravestone, and the show was 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 basically not to come back. And as we said, before, as I said before, there are other shows that were were, were um, taken to the executioner's block uh, as well. So, but of course, you know, fans being fans, and I think we'll touch on this later on about uh, fans' attitudes today to a similar event, but. Um, it uh, it was it was basically you know killed off and then uh, resurrected uh, in a, in a last minute reprieve under much protest and really when it was you know brought back nothing had really changed apart from curtailed episode lengths that's really it I mean and that was that was the great shame wasn't it really yeah, that, yeah. Uh, they had been given an opportunity they had been given a second chance and you don't get many second chances in life. No, uh, particularly in television really I mean it's remarkable that they decided that they backtracked to that extent but no. I mean as Richard said. Uh, there was money involved, uh, and uh, as we know, money makes the world go around. And enterprises at that point, what that they'd pre-sold the, the following season to the to the states, and um, you know, it was, it's a bit hard to say we've taken your money, but we don't have a product to give you. So, and look at the product we are going to give you eighteen months later. I mean, that's the greatest uh, tragedy out of the whole thing was they didn't change uh, the producer or the script editor. It needed new ideas. It just needed a new direction, and to be honest, the organisation didn't give a crap about it, as um, Jonathan Powell said, uh, Wither on a Vine. It really was like a contractually obligated Greatest Hits album. They just kept pumping minimum product out for overseas sales, and they just didn't care where they scheduled it. We've got Richard's uh, viewpoint from, you know, within the UK back in uh, 85. Hmm. The anniversary itself is, is February the 27th, is that right, mate? That's correct, yes. So it's just coming up, so we hope to drop this episode, we will be dropping this episode on that day. Let's everyone cast our minds back uh, 29 <laughs> some years ago. There was no such thing as the internet as we know it today, and most people found out information from the UK via that now venerable... Um, or, uh, organ of the show, Doctor Who uh, magazine. Uh, Mark, how did you find out? How did you find out about the cancellation and what were your reactions at the time? I can remember it quite clearly. Two guys in my school, a couple of years in front of me, they came running up to me, waving something gleefully. Uh, I thought it was maybe my report card, but no, it wasn't. It, wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was a newspaper clipping from, uh, was it The Sun? The Sun newspaper back then? The, the Sun News Pictorial, yeah, one of Rupert Murdoch's uh, largest selling newspapers, people, with fact fans. Uh, it had a small clipping in it saying Doctor Who's been, and I think it was cancelled. 
I think it said cancelled, and uh, they're saying, oh, Doctor Who's been cancelled. And I think they were, had some sort of perverse delight, even though they were fans themselves. <laughs> I think had some perverse delight in telling the younger kid, you know, that his favourite show had been cancelled. And I remember I was quite, I wasn't bawling my eyes out, but I was a bit upset. I remember going home that night and saying to my dad, oh, they've cancelled Doctor Who. And my dad said, oh, don't worry, ITV will get the rights. Well, that didn't happen. Imagine if it did. Anyway, moving right along. Yeah. The primeval of the 1980s. But, uh... It could have been, yes. Now, you were, you were in uh, organised Victorian fandom at that point, is that right? No, I was... Oh, okay. I think I was a member of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria, but didn't go to too many meetings. I remember getting the, the magazine, the Sonic Screwdriver magazine, mm. um, and sort of trying to keep up with what was going on in there. But uh, there was quite a bit of... I suppose in that time... A lot of the local zines, there's quite a lot of bile towards uh, John Nathan Turner and, and the production team and Colin Baker as well. So mm. I suppose it was hard to get a clear, objective view. I think at the time, though, Australians were cushioned from the 18-month uh, suspension somewhat because we had season 22 starting started in December 85, and that ran through, obviously, up to the end of Revelation. And then from there on then, we had repeats of the Mind Robber and the Crotons, and they went straight into a run of John Pertwee episodes, and some of them had never been screened in Australia before. So to us, we didn't really care that much because we still had Doctor Who running every day. Uh, and you'd read in d Doctor Who magazine, people complaining the fact, especially in the UK, they had no repeats, they had no nothing. And uh, I think Qantas 747 jets were laden with uh, VHS tapes of people taping uh, Pertwee episodes and flogging it back to the UK because we were getting all these stories uh, for the first time and in better quality than what had been screened or, or sourced previously. So to be honest, I, the cancellation didn't really have that much of an impact on me because Doctor Who in my eyes is still going. Well, my recollection, I've been pondering this for uh, the last few days in the lead up to this, I have, a, I have a strong memory. I'm not entirely sure how the information was conveyed, but given that you uh, had friends who were flapping the, the Sun newspaper, in, not the British Sun newspaper, but the, the, the Melbourne Sun in your face, I can only assume that that's how the information was found out up where I was going to school. I was in my second year of high school and school had basically just been back for a month or a month and a bit. And the I won't give her name, though I do remember it. Um, one of the relief uh, uh, substitute teachers... Uh, I was in the library. I think it was around lunchtime. I was no doubt getting a book out, uh, and I was at the at the at the desk getting it stamped. And this uh, substitute teacher, who's a lovely lady, uh, came in and went up to the one of the librarians at the desk. And I remember the, that librarian as well. And uh, she said, "They've killed him! They've killed him!" <laughs> and she was pointing to a Colin Baker badge that she had on her. Uh, she was uh, had pinned to her uh, her blouse. Now th- this substitute teacher was actually one of the cooler teachers because. Not only was she a Doctor Who fan, but she was also the guardian of all the Dungeons and Dragons uh, rule books. Uh, there was a there was a, there was a role playing um, club at uh, my high school, and players as well. She she guarded them from bullies all around, did she? Oh no 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 nothing. We we, we looked after ourselves, but she was the guardian. Of, you know the the Dungeon Master's Manual and the Player's Handbook and uh, di- deities and demigods and a couple of other books as well. So she was a, a bit of a you know. Uh, she was heavily into geek culture well before that term actually came around. So that was how I found out. And I was a bit nonplussed by the whole idea of Doctor Who being cancelled because uh, it, it, would, it had been, you know, with with the heavy repeats during the 70s or late 70s and into the early 80s, it was just that constant in your viewing viewing day. You'd go home yeah. and 
uh, the goodies would be on and then uh, Doctor Who would come on and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that, that would just happen on heavy rotation most of the way through the year. So the idea, and I mean, I wasn't plugged into, into any clubs or anything like that. Uh, so I, I, I had no access to the Doctor Who magazine. I didn't see Doctor Who magazine until about eight, issue 76 or 77 or something like that. Hmm. Um, so I, I had no idea, you know, what was going in there. And there was no club up in up in, uh, up in in Mildura where I was living until a little bit later. And I had no idea about the Doctor Who Club of Victoria. So I was complete, I was an island. I was a man alone. I was, you know, Robinson Crusoe with regards to any serious news about Doctor Who other than what came through the newspaper. I had no idea... The, of the the sort of the scorn that was being poured on to Colin Baker and to J and T and to the perceived quality of season twenty two, and um, uh, and to actually read it later, you know, in the in the pages of DWB, which I sort of picked up about six years later after I finished high school, and uh, a couple of uh, Australian based zines. Uh, there's one uh, which I've mentioned uh, a few episodes back. Which is a seventy-four page screed against <laughs> JNT, against Colin Baker, against the whole Sixth Doctor era. Um, points for um, stamina, if you want to, you know, for writing it. But yeah, I'm not entirely sure that the, the conclusions are, are warranted. But yeah, and, and as you said, uh, the, the the repeats, you know, the the black and white stories were, were shown, and I've obviously never seen any of those. And and these, you know, these new, effectively new Pertways, which were never screened in the originally, mm. uh, sort of tided, tided us over. And um, so, yeah, I mean, as you said, uh, my, my experience of Doctor Who, uh, far, far from the coalface in the UK, was okay. It, they say it's been cancelled, but now it's come back. And there were more episodes for the next four or so years. So, you know, play on, basically. So was it the right decision, do you think, Rob? Well, at the time, Mark, it, there was, I didn't think that there was any perceived difference in the quality of the show from year to year. So I mean, I was watching Attack of the Cybermen and uh, and the two Doctors went, uh, and I, I didn't see you know I mean it was a different Doctor and um, and and all that sort of thing, a different and you know another companion, but it um, it didn't seem to me at that time that the the show was deserving of the axe. But then um, I I just I just didn't know any different. In 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 hindsight, what it needed was more love. I think mm. if 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 J and T had gone with 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 Peter Davison. I mean, this is the, the, the mantra that people say. If, if J&T had gone with Peter Davison, he'd be looked back on far, far more fondly and his, and his era, which, you know, like every other era, have its ups and downs, would still be looked on much more favourably and his legacy would be in, held in higher esteem than it currently is now. Mm. Um, did it... Should it have been... I, I suppose, yes, looking back, you know, having read about things, uh, how, how things were going on, how the, how the production was sort of beginning to fall apart, uh, it probably did need a, a rest... I think that the BBC at that time, it's sort of, you know, the, the making the shows arm versus the, the money arm, the, you know, the, the, the BBC Enterprises was not really in sync. Uh, and if it had been in more sync, uh, perhaps more money would have flowed to the show to increase the quality. Uh, and, you know, it, it's just in hindsight, basically, in summing up, probably it needed a rest, but I don't think it needed the chop. What, what do you think? If you asked my 15-year-old self, I would say, no, it wasn't the right thing to do. But... When I look back on that season now, and I remember watching it with my parents and my grandparents who are out from the UK, to me, it was doing everything I wanted. It was lots of monsters, lots of continuity references, so I could, you know, fan-wank all over them. It had Nicola Bryant in curvaceous uh, costumes. It was doing everything I thought it should be doing. But I remember watching it with my parents and my grandparents, and they were saying it was rubbish. Mm. It had gone down in quality since 
you know, they were used to watch it. They were watching it in Hartnell and Troughton and in a bit of Pertwee and Baker. Did you ever find, know what what aspect of the you know quality had was lacking? Was it? Uh, I think some of the acting was uh, was thrown into question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some of the tone of it as well. I, I do remember the attack of the Simon when Lytton's getting his fingers crushed. Uh, there was a bit of uh, gnashing of teeth, I think, from my mother. But now, when I look back on that season, like you, I think it did need a rest. I think it did need a... It just needed a clean-out. It just needed a new producer, a new script editor. They were burnt out. And I don't think the entire blame should be thrown at Colin Baker's feet. I think he was... You know, the character he was playing, it was a three-line creation of John Nathan Turner. I don't think he had much input into it. And, you know, as we've seen, what he, his work with Big Finish, he could have been sensational, given decent scripts, a decent bloody costume, and time. If it had been the 70s, Colin Baker as the Doctor would have prospered, but uh, time was rapidly running out in the 80s, wasn't it? I mean, this is, this is the funny thing. Peter Davison, you know, everyone loves Peter Davison and there's a lot of regard for his stories. But if even if Peter Davison had hung around for another year... He would have got the axe. It'd be Peter Davison who'd be carrying the opprobrium of being the Doctor uh, when the show was originally axed back in '85. It's it's uh, people and look these arguments have been, you know, <laughs> gone through with a fine tooth comb for the last thirty years. Hmm. Who's to blame? Who should carry the load? But I mean, at the end of the day, it wouldn't have mattered if Laurence Olivier had been the Doctor back in 1985. The BBC was going to shut the doors on the production team, basically. Have you ever seen that interview, uh, Room 101, with Michael Grade? Uh, I have a copy of it lying around somewhere. What? Uh... I watched it before this uh, this recording. Research, people, research. Research, we do it occasionally. They showed him a clip of Doctor Who, and of course it was Warriors of the Deep Part 4 with karate chopping murkers and stuff like that. And the, the audience are pissing themselves laughing. And Grey just did it was, you know, cheap. I sent E.T., I saw Star Wars, and then I'm seeing cardboard monsters shuffling around the floor. His disdain for the show was well known well before he joined the BBC. Didn't like it, didn't want it. But what he didn't realise was the commercial implications. Mm. If you think about it now, what they should have probably done was, yes, give it a rest, relaunch. The thing is with the relaunch, when it did come back, if the organisation's not behind it, it can't succeed. That's why its ratings sank, and with a stupid mm. trial concept, it's just so constricting already. You can't jump in, you can't jump off. They had to do, on the UK transmissions, little uh, recaps for every episode to tell the audience what the hell's going on. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, the audience wasn't ready for the whole idea of a, of a story arc, and given that it had been off the air for 18, min- 18, min- wait, minutes, 18 months, mm. uh, people's, habit, people's viewing habits change, and, and, and you know... You, if you're not if you're not in front of someone's eyes, well, they they say, well, why bother? Why, why am I going to be interested in this? So it's still the same guy in a stupid costume with really bad production values. If I watch Trial now, I got a lot more out of it now than what I did back then. Mm. But it's still got problems. No, no, it's got massive problems. It's got massive problems. I mean, uh, look, aside from you know some a couple of the stories being, I think, reasonably good, it has got massive problems. And I think the greatest crime, for want of a better word, the greatest uh, crime. Of that particular event, the cancellation, the show coming back, was that they spent 18 months absolutely doing nothing. You know, if I wanted to, I could start thumping my desk once again. But they did absolutely nothing. And they came up with a tired, jaded concept that did nothing to excite an audience to want to come back again and again. The formula for Good Doctor Who is simple. 
A charismatic lead character, supported by a decent actor as the companion, in exciting adventures. It's not about feelings, or about this, or about that. People looking, with Doctor Who, people should be looking for escapism. Yes. You know, not to have the world's problem solved in 45 minutes, but mm. um, exciting adventure. And when you laid, you know, lard it up with, um, with, with, with a, a book-ended concept like The Trial, all you're doing is taking away uh, momentum from the storytelling itself, you know, every five minutes, exaggeration, of course, but you're, you're, you're jumping back to The Trial itself. Uh, and you're just taking away uh, from the effect of the episode uh, that you've you know you've, you've been watching. Fourteen episodes to play with. What they could potentially have done was instead of having four parters and four parters and a six parter, just have two parters. The awakening showed it could work. Mm. So why not try as cram as many diverse stories in a small run of episodes to showcase what it can do? Structuring that that way went against JNT's own mantra of you know more opening nights. I mean if you've got seven two-parters that's that's a new story every couple of weeks that's you know right. that, that's something to to announce not the fourth part of the first story but the you know the the, the last episode of the second story yeah uh, more cliffhangers is it feasible that eric say would, would have been able to wrangle even more writers than he you know wasn't able to do before well probably not but you know at least that idea is you know more interesting than the concept and the structure that they came up with was there any positives that came out of it out of the cancellation. Hmm. Um, um, I think my response gives you all the... <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. It was one of those... I mean, we've talked before about the missing episodes being that, that scarifying um, uh, feature of, you know, fandom. Well, this... this the, the, the cancellation is another one of those, you know, momentous moments in, in, in Doctor Who history where it poisoned a lot of fans against... J&T and it sort of was that cloister bell tolling the end of the end of the series for the first time for a lot of people I think a lot of fans who grew up with the show during the 70s assumed that it would be on forever you know and in television terms it had been on forever and then suddenly they're faced with this really shocking event that the show has been cancelled you know at least initially before the BBC uh, caved Mm. and I think that uh you know, they, they sheeted a lot of blame towards J&T and never gave McCoy really uh, a decent chance. Hmm. And, you know, if, if you were part of the uh, the Rick Arch Doctor Who Wars during the 1990s on that message board, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the atmosphere was, you know, poisonous. It was toxic. On, on, on different occasions, it was vile. And I personally sheet that home to the reaction to the cancellation. The only po- positive was that Colin Baker wasn't sacked. Uh, with uh, uh, you know, uh, and that his only you know season was season twenty two because I mean at least he was given a chance to come back. They fumbled the ball badly and did nothing with his costume, which is an objectionable eyesore and really detracts from the viewing experience. But at least I suppose Colin was uh, given uh, another chance to shine, and you know, a lot of people say that he was more doctorish in, in uh, whatever that really means in, in season twenty three. There was a story going around, I think I've read this in Doctor Who Club of Victoria's magazine Supervoc, where JNT had his meeting with uh, Michael Grade. Michael Grade was voiced his concerns about Colin Baker back then, and sort of made heavy hints to maybe replace him for the next season. But JNT sort of stuck to his guns and said, no, I don't know if that has actually been confirmed. I can't remember reading it in the uh, 
in the in the J and T bio. Put it that way. Look, in defence of Grade, I mean, he was tasked with running an organisation. Uh, I can't believe the words defence and Grade are in the same sentence. Um, but no, I mean, in in Grade's defence, I mean, he had uh, broader horizons than merely one show, and uh, I suppose the scorn that's been heaped on him over the years is uh, maybe you know in part deserved but at the end of the day he had a he had a big organization to run that he had a vision for doctor who wasn't part of that vision fair enough i mean it's at the end of the day it is a tv show and he was trying to you know steer the bbc to being as broadly appealing as possible with you know a variety of new shows but at the i mean at the end of the day doctor who was just another cog in the bbc machine Mm. and if it was going to be switched off, it was going to be switched off. And I suppose, you know, if you wanted to blame anyone uh, for anything, you could blame the BBC uh, for not really understanding the show that they had on their hands mm. and not standing by their guns. If you were going to cancel something, don't then cave and spin it to be just a postponement to refresh and reset. I've witted on at length about perceived positives. What uh, Any positives that you... Um, can see from the whole experience doctor in distress the gift that keeps on giving it gave andrew cartmel the idea of how not to do a doctor who show or doctor who series because really if you sort of look at the landscape it was sort of it's like a nuclear wasteland wasn't it It was all charred but i suppose like any (laughs) nuclear wasteland eventually green shoots do spring up and i think those green shoots definitely started springing up with uh, andrew cartmel on the scene so i think trial gave cartmel um a great example of how not to do a show like Doctor Who. Mm. It's not much of a positive when you have to rely on a negative to... Uh... I know. I'm really scrabbling here. You could say that the show coming back with McCoy and Cartmall and um, Sophie Aldred gave a template for those new adventure writers during the 1990s. And mm. from that experience, we had a new generation of people working in the TV industry. Your Cornells, mm. your Gattises, your um, RTDs, your Stephen Moffats. So in that respect, the template that you had in uh, 87 to 89, which is a direct consequence and response against or reaction against you know, the Colin Baker years, helped seed through a new generation of writers who were bring, helped bring the show back. Yeah. I, don't see, I can't see how the new adventures could have come about if Colin Baker was, was the Colin Baker era was the end of the series. I don't think there was enough going on there if you wanted to use it as a springboard for deeper, broader tales told in book form. So in search of commentary on the cancellation, I posted on the main and biggest Doctor Who forum, Gallifrey Base, uh, a question about people's memories of the, the cancellation 30 years ago. And uh, pleasingly, we, we received a number of, uh, of comments, uh, which we'll uh, currently go through. First one's from David Griffiths. I was innocently watching the start of the BBC 6 o'clock news when Sue Lawley said, and the Time Lord's time is up, over a shot of the TARDIS from the two doctors. I was taken aback. It seemed that the series was just starting a new phase, new Doctor, new 45-minute format, etc. It was disappointing, but when it was revealed just to be for 18 months, it didn't seem too bad, especially with the promises that it will be back bigger than ever. Well, that turned out to be spin, but I mean, I suppose... I mean, that that (laughs) is... David's comment mirrors ours from earlier, that 
it uh, look it was only going to be, well it was it was a longer time than we were used to but there was no mm. sort of anticipation uh, of, of, of what was going on behind the scenes and the, and the struggles until uh, I suppose Eric Sayward's interview in Starburst uh, some you know uh, a little while afterwards <laughs> which really set the cat amongst the pig- pigeons but um, yeah, it's interesting I mean uh, I suppose it would have been a surprise I mean and, and that's that's you know DWM with its monthly schedule and there's no internet and and most fans didn't have a, a hotline into the, into the production team, wouldn't have known. So the surprise, as David says, probably was uh, electric for most people. I felt very sorry for Doctor Who magazine, though, or monthly as it was back then, because their 100th issue coincided with the release of the cancellation news. Oh, yes. So they said, well done, us. Oh, our, the show we're actually you know, discussing and have a publication about has been canned. We, we may need to brush up our CVs. Now, the, um, we also received a, uh, a posting from the Space Pirate, who uh, is a uh, Doctor Who fan based here in Australia. He says, I found it harder and harder to be a fan of Doctor Who during the period 1985 to 1987. Season 22 seemed like an endless cavalcade of grotesqueries. Combine that with a nutso costume on our main character and any cachet the series might have had went out the window. In Australia, Doctor Who was at least semi-cool during the Tom Baker era. Most Aussie children of that time have a memory of Tom as the Doctor. But after that, interest, for the general public at any rate, started going downhill. Colin Baker's brash, violent incarnation was a bridge too far. Note, I am speaking from the perspective of the general Australian viewer. And season 22 basically signed its death warrant so far as popularity of the show was concerned. The hiatus came at just the right time, although I have to say some of the stories originally planned for season 23 sounded intriguing. Nonetheless, it was probably just as well it had a rest, and the hiatus laid the groundwork for the departure of my least favourite script editor, Eric Sayward. So in the end, it was a good thing as Andrew Cartmell came in with fresh writers and fresh ideas. Look, it's not surprising that um, those thoughts uh, mirror uh, our thoughts as well. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure they're the similar thoughts that a lot of fans had, that uh, the show you know, was in need of a rest of some description. And uh, while this was a drastic way of doing it, uh, perhaps mm. it was for the best. In the expectation and hope that what came next was bigger than Ben-Hur. Well, justified. Justified the fact that yeah. this show that people you know knew and loved grew up with uh, was being uh, rested for, for an extended period of time. And I mean, I, I'm sure for, the, for British fans, the 18-month wait was, well, excruciating is probably too long, but in the absence of... Uh, Torturous, really. Repeats. I mean, the, 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 mm. the VHS market was only just opening up at that point, wasn't it? Was Revenge of the Cybermen came out? Revenge of the Cybermen came out, I think it was 83... And did they have the one the one hour edition of Brain and Morbius was out the year after I think so there's very scant titles I think Seeds of Death came out in '86 so there was supposed to be a repeat screening of the Chase to celebrate the BBC's then 50th anniversary and that never materialised I think they got a clip on some retrospective show so. You know, the poor old UK fans had really nothing for that time. I wonder what percentage of UK fans um, had access to uh, pirate tapes from the US and, and, uh, and say, Australia or New Zealand to tide them over. I don't know, but have you, have you seen that documentary on the Revenge of the Cybermen DVD? Check uh, Lies and Videotape. Uh, I'd love to. Have you, have you seen no, it? I've never seen it. <laughs> it's a loving retrospective on the videotape scene in the UK. I'll have to pull it out. Actually, if you've got any um, memories of your tape trading days, send them in. Yeah, why not? Um, <laughs> yes, no, 
It's probably got property of Mark on it. Well, that's it. I mean, there, there are probably copies out there, Mark, that you uh, that can be ultimately sourced back to you. Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> so it's interesting that the Space Pirate says that um, that interest or general interest in the show declined. Um, mm. I'm not quite sure how he measures that or what his recollection is like. Could have been the schoolyard like it was mine. When Davison was on, it was fairly popular at my school. It wasn't getting my head flushed down the toilet like it was when McCoy era came on. You know, as soon as Colin Baker turned up, people started saying, oh, no, he's awful, and, you know, it's really crap, and blah, blah, blah. It just got worse and worse and worse until I left high school. It's, it's interesting to ask what um, a young fan was looking for in their portrayal of the Doctor back then. What, what set Tom Baker apart from a Peter Davison or a Colin Baker? Because you ask any, any person over the age of 40 here in Australia to, to name a doctor, and they would say the one with the, the big eyes and the, and the curly hair and the scarf. Mm. It's uh, it's an interesting question to ask what, what they were looking for. Probably uh, Tom Baker's length of tenure. For, for seven years, he was on in Australia all the time. Mm. When Davison came on, his stories didn't get repeated that much, and certainly Colin Baker's didn't. I mean, and and certainly McCoy's uh, McCoy series was uh, shoved on at five thirty in an afternoon when people were at work. So, you know, in terms of um, making an impact in the role, it was definitely Tom Baker, just mainly because of length of time and also his his portrayal as well um, stuck in the mind. Because the McCoy era was part of a longer. Uh, set of t- uh, children's TV programming on the ABC uh, on weekday afternoons, wasn't it? It was the afternoon show, the afternoon wasn't it? Show, yeah. yeah, and that yeah. was sort of paired or teamed up with um, more kiddie fare than anything else. All right, we should move on to our next uh, contributor, who, Mark, is... J.R. Southall. Uh, young J.R. What does J.R. have to say, Mark? He says, Personally, I didn't find the cancellation of Doctor Who a surprise, and let's not beat around the bush. If there hadn't been much of a reaction, that would have been it. And Doctor Who would have stayed dead rather than just playing dead. I think the writing had been on the wall for the past several years. Many of the stories of the 1980s had been pretty impenetrable with incomprehensible motives and plotting. It was that more than anything which had caused the upper echelons of the BBC raised eyebrows, I think. And I wasn't unhappy to see the back of it, frankly. The problem was that nobody else seemed terribly interested in making it, other than JNT. And while Nathan Turner would prove his mettle later on by allowing Andrew Cartmel freedom to ring in some changes and freshen things up, by 1985 that just wasn't looking possible anymore. The trouble was, rather than replacing either producer or script editor, when Doctor Who returned towards the end of 1986, very little had changed, other than the viewing figures, which halved. If the hiatus proved anything, it was that the BBC had been right in the first place to cancel Doctor Who. Funnily enough, if a lesson could have been learned during those long 18 months, it was that Doctor Who is a series with an infinite capacity to overcome shark jumping moments, an infinite capacity for reinvention, but it wouldn't learn that lesson for another year, not until the vastly underrated season 24 rolled around. Perhaps if we skipped season 23 and came right back with Sylvester McCoy and Andrew Cartmel, the audiences wouldn't have drifted off and things might have been different by 1989. We'll never know. Well-known Doctor Who writer, John Blum, uh, wrote... Actually, it might be John Bloom. I think if we're in France, it would be Bloom. But since he's from the States, we'll go with John Blum. John writes, I think many of us were aware of the fact that the 1985 cancellation was nothing to do with Doctor Who at all. A lot of 80s bashers just accept the excuses Grade gave at the time. In 1985, the show was doing okay in terms of popularity and creatively. I'm afraid it really wasn't doing okay in terms of popularity. Audience reaction scores had dropped steadily and dramatically. 
The year in review final audience scores for seasons 19 to 22 went 66%, 62%, 57%, 57%, basically dropping from a Tom Baker level score to far below. Ratings were still at the same low level as the previous two years. It's because the Beeb weren't satisfied with a 7 million average for season 20 that they made the decision to move to 45 minutes on Saturdays in the first place to get ratings back up, but they didn't move, and even seemed to be trending a bit downwards from there. The show was repeatedly falling out of the top 100. Now, Grade may well have tried to axe the show even if it was doing significantly better than that, but the fact remains, it was vulnerable. Creatively, you may be well of the opinion that it was doing good stuff, but the audience in general wasn't seeing it that way. And just to make it clear, the slump in that stretch of the 80s was pretty much the direct opposite in my own opinion. I thought Davison's run pegged in season 21. The audience saw that as his weakest, and on much the same level as season 22. So it's not the case that I'm using grade or the audience reaction to validate my own opinions. I'm just saying that the evidence shows that the ratings and audience reaction were not okay in creative and popularity terms. There were clear signs the show needed to kick up the arse. Just a diametrically opposite kick up the arse to the one grade and power gave it. <laughs> Cheers, John Blum. Now, if anyone uh, does follow what uh, John uh, writes on uh, originally uh, Post Gallifrey and Gallifrey Base, he does have a lot of you know really insightful views uh, in, into, especially to the, uh, the the dramas that were going on in the nineteen eighties. Uh, and this particular topic is not an old one for John. He's uh, he's fought these wars uh, since the nineties, basically on Rick Doctor Who from memory. So he's well versed in this. And, he, and of course, these I mean, you, you can't argue with the figures. Uh, DWB mm. at the time uh, or after the event was publishing audience appreciation scores, and they they definitely showed a trend down for the Colin Baker era. And whilst the um, season twenty two, you know, was average was its average was basically the same as Peter Davison. Um, there, there, there was there wasn't a market uptick, and I suppose if the BBC was looking for uh, an improvement in the ratings to justify its existence, uh, it didn't see that sufficiently uh, to warrant the show going on. Uh, the next letter we have is from Brian Morbius, uh, whose brother is Brain. So hello, if you're listening. Uh, news of the cancellation went out whilst the two doctors was being transmitted, wasn't it? A pantomime dame gnawing on a rubber rat sort of summed up how low the show had sunk. What was the production team's conception of who they were making the show for by that stage? I don't know. The show should not have been allowed to go on as long as it had then under JNT's tutelage without someone stepping in. Counselling it outright was harsh, although having done that, I'm surprised the BBC lacked the balls to follow it through on it and make it stick. And I'm equally surprised that having rescinded the cancellation, it left the same production team in place to continue muddling on hopelessly. The next one we've got is from Chris Roberts, uh, who says, 1985 was the first time the show seemed vulnerable. Its future hadn't always been secure, but that was mostly hidden in meeting rooms around the BBC. Then suddenly it crossed the fans' minds that the show could actually be cancelled, and it's hard now to recapture the shockwave it caused. In many ways, we're still carrying those scars and fears around with us. When the ratings dip slightly, there's a spectre, however unlikely, of cancellation looming in some people's minds, because they know it did happen once before, twice if you count 89, and three times if you count 1996. Yes, I think uh, from fans of our vintage, there is always that fear that it could happen again. But I think we've mentioned it on the previous podcast that if the axe did loom, I think you'd find the show being taken up by a uh, independent content provider like a Netflix or Amazon, as they did with uh, Series 3 of Ripper Street. I don't think the BBC would ever 
really let the, the series go. If it was, I mean, we should, we should probably talk about you know reaction to the possibility of a cancellation today. I mean, the show is more or less riding high. It is a massive money spinner for the BBC. Uh, it's nominated for awards left, right, and centre. But mm. you know, I suppose the BBC would ha- well. <laughs> You know, history which would indicate that they need to, um, that they would handle any announcement of any resting or cancellation far, far better than was done in 1985. I mean, there was enough enough carry on when they had the series of tenant specials to indicate to them that if there's any hint that the show is going off the air, they will need to handle that very, very carefully. And need to deliver a good bunch of specials to keep us happy. How do you think fan- fandom would react if the BBC came and said, look, you know, the show's had a good 10 or 11 year run. Uh, we're thinking it needs a bit of a rest creati- crea- creatively. It would no doubt coincide with, say, if Peter, when, when and if Peter Capaldi left, uh, they'd sort of make the announcement at the same time. How, how, would, how do you think fandom would react to that? Uh, meltdown. Because they've got more avenues these days to let their feelings known. So Twitter will go into meltdown. Facebook will go off. Personally, if it got cancelled, would I be upset? Would I be outraged? Do you know what? No, I probably won't because I've lived through it a couple of times before. Mm-hmm. I know in another 10 or 15 years it will come back again. One of the, Another positive of, the, of the, the 89 cancellation was the fact that fans had the time to go back and watch old stories and reappraise them with fresh eyes. And I think the same thing will happen again. I will definitely go back and start watching uh, New Who again and probably have a different viewpoint on it because I've been preparing for a future podcast and sort of gone back to some New Who stories I didn't think much of at the time. And you know what? Actually, they're pretty good. The only only proviso that I would have on the, the BBC resting it would be to give Capaldi the length of time that he wanted in the, in, in the show, whether that's two mm. or three years. Give him that and then go, okay, we're going to coincide any resting with his departure. Not so that it's truncated. I mean, Colin Baker, the only one who came out of the 1985 cancellation with a shred of dignity was Colin mm. Baker. Eric Saywood mm. torched himself. JNT limped, in, limped into obscurity in a very sad finale. Colin mm. Baker is the only one really, and Nicola Bryant to an extent, uh, who, who of the big three at that point who maintained their reputation, maintained their mm. dignity, and, mm. you know... Colin Baker has 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 basically beaten fan opinion. He's that last fan fan opinion. He's overcome fan opinion that his portrayal was rubbish. That he was not a good actor in the role. You go and listen to any of the big finish, even the least of the Colin Baker big finish uh, stories, is worth listening to simply for his performance. You know, I'd go and listen to say something like Jubilee, where his performance is really is, is really spot on. Any of the stories that feature him and Frobisher, you know, the 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 character, the penguin character from the comics, mm. are, are well worth listening to because you know he was given the ability to portray the Doctor as he wanted to do so, and um, it's just a great shame that he wasn't allowed that on the, to do that on uh, on TV back in the mid eighties. Should we do some letters before we go? Yes, just quickly, I think. You've got mail. First of all, is from Doc Whom. Hello, Doc, who says, Lordy, what was that Aussie Doctor Who song you ended your underrated podcast with? What was that uh, Aussie Doctor Who song, Mark? I was putting it together on the Australia Day weekend, and I sort of felt a bit of nationalistic pride here. So uh, the track is called Doctor Who is Going to Fix It. It's by an Australian band called, and I hope I get this right, it's Bulla Makanka. Uh, which I think is Aboriginal for one-hit wonder. 
And then Karen Hyman then contacted us and said, I didn't realize that you had actually changed your theme music. I love the old one. I miss it. Like Liam Gallagher, when he had to uh, continually sing Wonderwall at many concerts, he started to have a gag reflex. I was starting to have a gag reflex hearing our theme song, so I decided to change it. If there's enough protest, I'll, uh, I'll change it back. The theme song I did like was the, uh, the Blue Box podcast's uh, New Order one. I should have asked Jay if I could nick that and just use it. Did you know that there's a, there's a new podcast out there called the Big Blue Podcast? Really? Is it about security? I don't know. <laughs> it's just uh, it's just odd that uh, someone there's plenty of names that you could give your Doctor Who podcast. I one white watch is one that is remarkably close to another long running successful podcast. As soon as one Doctor Who podcast uh, stops, thirty eight take come up to take its place. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. It's like a hydra. You chop off one head and 38 new podcasts roll around. Uh, Kieran also then points out that we were talking about in our Underrated Stories podcast, we forgot to mention that the director of the very first Doctor Who story, An Unearthly Child, Waris Hussein, is actually still alive. Bad fans, Mark. Bad fans. Apologies to Waris if you're listening and we know that you... Won't be. Also, Kieran then uh, sent us a, uh, an image to our Facebook page about... We were talking about the letter that Barry Letts received uh, regarding the Green Death, where it said the letter about the Green Death was, the reason I am written is how to say... Now, is it chitin? I, I, I still get it wrong. Kitten, isn't it? Kitten, I don't know. Anyway. Chitin? Yes. And then we talked about the... Uh, in Hyde, and Matt Smith said Metabolus. Uh, mm-hmm. There was also uh, Doctor Who magazine had uh, somebody wrote in... He said the reason for this appeal is how to say metabilis. Oh, metabilis. Very of clever. Very clever. And Billy Kirk Bright from Perth in Western Australia says uh, he posted on our Facebook page and said, Hi, Mark and Rob. I'm new to listening to your podcasts. Uh, I've heard uh, three so far. Great stuff. That's probably enough. I think three's enough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't scare yourself a lot. Yeah, don't go back Billy. to the early ones, please. You think these are bad enough? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We've been damned with faint praise by one of our co-hosts, people. <laughs> uh, I was put onto your show by Rob Lloyd, who I bumped into at the Ultimate Fan Experience cocktail party last week in Perth at the Symphonic Spectacular last week. Fabulous show, by the way. It would seem that you have a new listener. Keep up the great work. Billy. Uh, thank you, Billy. And thank you, Rob Lloyd. That's a beer we owe you. I don't like beer, Mark. But then it's not owed to me, so that's all right. Okay, Yes. And actually, just a just a, a plea to our listeners. Uh, apparently, there's this website called iTunes. I think they call it. Oh, yes. I think it's a, it's a little site. A mm. little site. It's it's forging its way into in, in the big world of the internet. Mm. Um, if anyone would like to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes, uh, that would be really appreciated. Um, I, apparently, it helps you know maintain the visibility of the podcast on iTunes. Yeah. Apparently, there's more than you know six Doctor Who podcasts out there. So, um, you know, the more listeners, uh, the more chances that we'll set up a Patreon uh, project. So, <laughs> yes. I, I jest, of course, I jest, people. But uh, it'd be it'd be nice to just if, if anyone is of of the mood to uh, make a few uh, leave a few reviews on iTunes. Yeah, please. we've got two at the moment, and I think they were written by us under a different name. So, uh, uh, yes, 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 yes. All right. So I think uh, I think we've. Uh, uh, we, we've basically sucked that topic dry, Mark. We will never touch on this topic ever again. Never again will the fear of the cancellation of Doctor Who haunt our doors. But what I can't promise you is that I will use Doctor in Distress uh, further on in the future. All right, well, that's a promise to you, our listeners. So yes. once again, thank you very much for listening to us. 
It's been a great pleasure having you uh, with us once again. And to round off, I've been Michael Grade. And I've been Jonathan Powell. Yabu sucks. Yabu sucks indeed. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42todoomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42todoomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42todoomsday. Please check out our blog, 42todoomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.